Uh, Jill, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Wish podcast. My pleasure. It's great to be here. We would like to start off asking if you could please explain the current understanding of the pathoetiology of tendinopathy. The continuum model we published nearly 11 years ago now, and that described a cell-based process where the cell responds to excess load and the uh, tendon then manufactures extra proteoglycans that disrupts the collagen. So that's where we started. What we've done is updated that a couple of times. I'm most excited about our latest update that's based on Hazel Screen's work. And she's done a lot of work on the connective tissue in tendons. And what she's shown is it's about slide and rotation between the collagen fascicles, the tendon fascicles that actually takes all the energy storage and release loads. This makes a lot of sense from the continuum perspective. What we now think is that our reactive tendon is actually an interfascicular issue, and that's why it's reversible. When we overload it more than, that causes more uh, change in the tendon than between the fascicles, we actually break down the interfascicular matrix and load the tendon fascicles, and that's the disrepair degeneration. So I think we've just got better each time we've tried to um, think about the continuum, but I still think the basis is right. And one of the key things that we say when we talk about it is there's actually still no evidence that it's not right. So there might not be a lot of evidence that it is right, but there's nothing to show that it's not right. Could you briefly describe the continuum model for us? Yeah, sure. So the normal tendon has um, intact collagen matrix with very lazy indolent cells and not many proteoglycans. What happens if you overload it, then the load goes to the cell. The cell starts to excrete a different uh, amount of protein, so it becomes activated, it becomes more chondroid in nature, and it excretes these large proteoglycans. They absorb water, and then what happens is you start to see swelling of the tendon. If that process goes on, the swelling in the, prote- in the tendon from the proteoglycans actually creates a breakdown of the collagen matrix and that in turn creates um, a, an irreversible pathology. So it's cell-based, um, primarily earlier proteoglycan response, but that then drives a collagen-based response. So Jill, a, a tendinopathy is primarily a clinical diagnosis. Um, and imaging is mostly unnecessary. When taking a history from a person who has tendon pain, what questions do you ask and what signs do you look for in order to diagnose a tendinopathy? So the history is all about establishing a case for tendon overload. So has the person done something that suggests you've had too much load on a tendon because it's the excess load that creates the pain that creates the person coming to see you. So we're really looking for a a history of excess load. We're looking for comorbidities in the person that might um, multiply that overload. So things like diabetes or other things can make the the excess load um, uh, more impactful on the tendon. So the history is really about establishing that you have a case for a tendon problem. Then the examination, what we're looking for is to see that the load on a tendon 
reproduces that pain. So we look at low to high tendon loads and we know that there are different sorts of loads on tendons. So we look at the effect of compressive loads, we look at the effect of the energy storage loads and the friction loads and put it together so that the history matches the findings in the assessment. If those things all link up, then we're very happy to call it tendon pain. What we find clinically is that people are lazy in this process and they take a very short and not um, a broad history. They don't examine tendons well enough and don't examine the dysfunction that we see with tendinopathy. They call it a tendon on a very poor background and then that's where we get into differential diagnosis problems. So a really good history, a good examination, really good clinical reasoning will give you the diagnosis of tendon or not. If you're lazy across any of those processes, that's where you make your mistakes in diagnosis. So as you've just mentioned, tendinopathy is primarily a loading error, cumulative. Perhaps education and addressing a person's beliefs towards the load is worth including based on that. And something that we as clinicians should be aware of is that the simple intervention of loading also has psychological effects. Should there be future attempts in order to develop a model for tendinopathy that incorporates more of a biopsychosocial approach as opposed to a biomedical approach like with the continuum model? I get asked this question a lot and I think we have to discriminate between upper limb tendinopathy where there's been um, different findings from research. In the lower limb we don't find that there's very many sort of psychosocial issues associated with the tendon. So we definitely have the bio part, we have a little bit of the psycho part in that um, because tendon pain is evident with loading, people get very fearful of loading, so we see kinesiophobia. That results in changing quality of life, but it's no more complex than that. So if we manage the pain correctly, what happens is we change the fear of loading, we change the quality of life, and we don't have to go educating people about their pain beliefs or educating people about um, other aspects of, of this biopsychosocial model. I think we overestimate in tendinopathy the role of that. If people overload and their tendon hurts, they stop loading, it hurts, they stop doing things that they want to do, that changes their life. It's easy to reverse once you reverse the pain. We don't tend to see people with chronic tendon pain that uh, is influenced by sort of processing or, or um, you know, central, centrally driven changes. So, Jill, we know that um, pain is often not well correlated with structure of the tissue. Um, one person may present with a very painful reactive tendinopathy and another person with, who's in the degenerative phase who has mild to moderate or maybe even no pain. We know that pain and nociception are two very different things. But nociception and tissue structure are usually well correlated except in tendons. Do we have any idea as to what the drive for nociception is in tendinopathies? No, we don't. But the same can be said for many of our musculoskeletal tissues, especially overuse injuries. So OA knee, we don't know the driver of nociception. 
in low back pain, we don't know the driver of nociception. So I don't think you can say that tendons are an exception here. I think they're no different. We just treat them differently in terms of we're, we're frustrated or surprised that there isn't a connection between structure and pain. But we actually see that in a lot of musculoskeletal conditions, especially the overuse conditions. So our acute injuries, such as our stress fractures and our muscle strains, we have a clear nociceptive driver because we've got, you know, muscle tearing or muscle, you know, musculotendinous tearing probably. Um, and we get bleeding and we get inflammation, proliferation, maturation. So in acute injury, we have clear nociceptive drive, but in overuse conditions of bone, of, of um, joint and of tendon, we don't see that nociceptive drive. So I don't think it's that different. Cool, thanks. So in tendinopathies, um, especially if they're not managed properly or if they're missed, um, can often subject a person to experiencing pain for prolonged periods. Is the concept of central sensitization or nociplasticity a consideration in tendon pain? Not in the lower limb. In the upper limb, there is some evidence that there may be some changes centrally. So these are um, where you see changes in pressure pain thresholds, changes in cold sensitivity. I'm not a pain person, so I can't talk this particularly well, but in the lower limb, it is absolutely simple. If you take people's pain away, and you can do that relatively quickly with isometric-based exercises, we change it and we don't see people develop, you know, uh, secondary uh, pain where you, if you're not loading, you still have pain. So you don't get tendon pain when you sit on the couch. You get tendon pain when you load. If we treat it correctly, then that pain, the loading pain goes away and we don't see any pain without um, that loading sort of capacity in the tendon so um, no I don't. Uh, Joel when it comes to imaging for tendinopathy as with many of the other musculoskeletal pathologies there isn't a very good correlation between symptoms and the results of the imaging as well as with intra and interrater reliability between clinicians that are then interpreting these images. Now, although in imaging can be helpful, we do need to be more mindful of the significance of each imaging study that we read and per patient. In other words, we do need to be better at putting imaging in the clinical context. How do we as clinicians develop the skill in general and in regards to tendinopathy? Oh, I think the thing that we're missing is getting out of our silos so we have a lot of clinicians that practice in their own expertise so our radiologists practice in radiology clinics and they don't often have a clinical perspective of what the person experiences our clinicians our doctors and our physios who are teaching it don't work in their silo and don't have an experience of the perspective of the radiologist so i think there has to be a lot more communication between the silos. The research can't just be radiology research or just clinical research. We actually need research that spans those so that the people who are doing the imaging understand the clinical presentation and the people who are doing looking at the clinical presentation understand the perspective of the radiologist. So I think from a research and from a clinical perspective, we need more melding of the profession and we need a more multidisciplinary approach to people with tendon pain. 
Um, that's easy to say, it's pretty hard to do. There are drivers of silos such as economic feasibility and economic return that imaging is, um, becomes really important from a perspective of um, you know, financial um, return for some practitioners. We have issues with our general practice sort of doctors who don't know about tendons or musculoskeletal injuries. So they become dependent on getting imaging and they get then interpret the imaging um, to make a clinical decision. It's our sports and our physios who can see a little bit broader than that. So I think we need a lot of things to change that. But for me, it would be having a little bit more input into how other um, professions image and see tendons, but we need them to come and see how we see tendons as well. We know that fluoroquinolones, class of antibiotics, put someone at risk for developing tendon injuries, particularly they have been linked to Achilles tendon ruptures. How does this class of antibiotics affect the health of tendons? We actually don't know. Uh, there's research mostly in animal models where we give rats large doses of fluoroquinolones and each of these research um, papers seems to show something different. We get profound changes in the matrix, but some of them seem to be collagen-based, some of them seem to be cell-based, some of them seem to be epigenetic. Everything seems to change in people who have a tendon issue post-fluoroquinolones. So we really don't know how it changes, but what we do know is that the matrix is profoundly affected as we talked about, and there's some new evidence that suggests it's not just tendons that are affected. There's some evidence to show that you can get changes in the vascular walls, in some of the, the, the valves in and around your heart. So you can actually get a, a body-wide change in how collagen is um, put together. That is really very important research because rupturing a tendon is one thing but actually affecting how your sort of cardiovascular system works is another thing at another level so um, i don't know where we can go with research in this it, it is so complex so few people who are given fluoroquinolones have a response a profound response like this so there's a lot of people who have them and don't get a response at all so we're talking about a very small population, they're very scattered, they're often very sick. There's a lot of issues with trying to research this in humans. Researching in animals doesn't help us that much. Um, so this is a, a problem that I think is going to hang about for a while and I think it's going to be very difficult to get definitive answers about how it works. Do you think that with research into how fluoroquinolones affect different tissues in the body, specifically tendons and the collagen matrix, we will ever be able to approach some kind of pharmaceutical or not passive modality for managing tendons. I, can you ask that question again? I don't think I am. Can you just ask it? He's alluding to guru medicine. No, not really guru medicine, but if, you know, if we can find out how the fluoroquinolones are affecting it negatively, is there not perhaps some way we could kind of, of flip the switch? Um, I don't think we're ever going to find out how fluoroquinolones affect the matrix, so I don't know that we can then 
interpreted in a, in a positive way. I mean, I think it's a really good thought that a negative, if we can understand the negative response, then we might be able to, to have a positive effect. Um, I think there's probably better interventions that we could think of. We know that loading makes tendons mechanically stiffer and that might be a way of, we know that that's a positive effect and we know that unloading is a negative effect. So what does loading do to tendons? Maybe that might be a way that we can get a better understanding of how to improve tendons, tendon health. Whether there's ever a pharmaceutical um, product, I think that's highly unlikely that we will be able to ever take a pill or have an injection and actually get a good outcome in tendons because it's just way too simplistic in the way tendons work and the way they become pathological, the way they become symptomatic and how we reverse that. So I think it's always going to be not what people want. People want a simple, magic, cheap treatment. What we have in tendons is, a, is an inexpensive treatment, but it's complex in terms, and in terms of how much work you have to do and how much adherence you need. It's long, you need to rehab for several weeks, at least, to get an outcome, and um, it can be very frustrating at times. So when treating a sports person with a tendinopathy, one of the factors to consider is the stage of the training season. Yes. Can you please elaborate on the implications that this has on the management and rehabilitation and what should clinicians be considering? Okay, again, that's a really complex question. So the simplest tendon to deal with in a competitive season is someone that's starting to become symptomatic at the end of the season. So you can unload them, you can use your isometric strategies, you can use your you know, passive treatments and manage the muscle and get the coach on board and you can often nurse them through five or six weeks relatively simply and get them through to the end of the season. The real problem we have is when people present at the start of the season or in the pre-season, that's by far the worst presentation. And that usually comes from inefficient or insufficient loading in the off-season. So what we commonly see is people have tendon pain in one season, they're told by the very best practitioners that they should rest in the off-season. What that does is just decrease capacity in the tendon and the muscle and kinetic chain. Then they come back into a high-loading environment in the pre-season and the tendon gets sore within a week or two. What you know then is that that's going to be a problem for the rest of the season, that you may need to rest that person out of very high loads. They may miss games. You then have to negotiate with the player and the coach and the strength and conditioning staff. It becomes a nightmare. So um, I would really advocate for being um, ahead of the game in terms of anybody who has a history of tendon pain or if you know they have a tendon pathology of constantly monitoring their loads, constantly monitoring their capacity and making sure that those two match up, that you don't suddenly change loads, that you get the coach to buy in to a reasonable loading program and that the athlete understands that they can't change high tendon loads. So, I think it um, uh, varies across the season, but I think if you're a really smart practitioner, you can actually avoid 
those very rotten tendons that come on early in the season and, and are quite malignant in terms of their pain. Particularly for multi-sport athletes and uh, school-level athletes, is there any indication for prehabilitating them against future possible tendinopathy to, for instance, as you've mentioned now, throughout the pre-season? Because maintaining these high loads is not going to be sustainable for them. I think there is a little bit of evidence. I think it's more clinical than research-based. Um, and we know that if you keep the loads at a sustained level, that's a much better way to manage a tendon than to either increase it or decrease it substantially. So the more we can maintain consistent load in the tendon, the better off we're going to be. Um, in terms of prehabbing, the best part um, that I know about this is Angle Bassis's work. So Angle works with the Spanish jumping team. He's published this. So this is in the IAAF journal. So these athletes put massive loads on their patella tendon for nine months of the year. What he does in the three months that they're not jumping is bring them in and does a really extensive prehabilitation program. So what he does is gradually increase the load on the tendon. By the time they get to the end of the three months, they're ready to jump. Their tendon has capacity, their muscle has capacity, they have the coordination, the, the loading rate capacity that they need. And then they, what he finds is they can actually get through a nine month season and then he'll bring them back in and he'll do a three month prehab. So that's an absolutely beautiful model. The problem that we have is getting athletes to buy into that. They need their time off in the off season. Our seasons are getting longer. We're, we're, athletes are playing more games in the season. So all this makes it much, much harder for us to control the loads on the tendon, to find the time to prehab and to get commitment to that sort of program. So it is really, really hard. So we'll keep this to just lower limb tendons because that's where your expertise is. Um, and maybe we should be more specific and say patella and Achilles tendon. Um, what are some common differential diagnoses that we should be considering before we nail it down to a tendinopathy? Okay, so the patella tendon is really easy because it's usually patellofemoral pain. We rarely see a true patella tendinopathy, even in elite jumping athletes, because a lot of elite jumping athletes spend a lot of time in deep knee flexion. They are often scrubbing around on the ground or landing on a bent knee. So they do have a lot of patellofemoral pain. So that's really easy because you tend to find it's either patellofemoral or it's patella tendinopathy. And there are a lot of clues in terms of differential diagnosis and your clinical examination, your subjective examination will all give you some pretty good ideas that it's either that or, the, or one or the other, basically. In the Achilles, it becomes much more difficult because you can have two or three things that contribute to pain. So you can have some tendon pain, you can have some neural pain, you can have some bursal pain, you can have some joint pain. And it might be cumulative, so you might have some um, tendon pain when you do your hopping and jumping, but that can also create a lot of load on your neural structures, so that might contribute to your hopping and jumping pain. So it's very hard in the Achilles tendon to sort that out. And what you have to do is make a diagnosis 
have a go at changing your neural pain by doing some neural mobs, retest. Then you might try to change your tendon pain with isometrics and then you retest. Then you might look at some sort of um, mobilizations for your ankle and then you would retest. And what you want to see is which of those treatments actually change the pain the most. Then you use that as the your guide to what structure is giving you the most pain. So it can be complex and it can take time and it might not be something you can do in one treatment. You might assess the tendon, think that there's a contribution to tendon pain, get them on a program. Then the next treatment, look at the neural um, implications and treat that and add that. So you do need to be a very good clinician and you need to have very good clinical reasoning processes. If we are looking within a specific compartment, so if we're looking at a posterior compartment of the lower limb, which would include things like uh, the Achilles tendon, the tibialis posterior, and the plantaris tendon, is there any structural considerations, for instance, uh, the pliability of the fascia or the tendon structure themselves that may contribute to tendinopathy? There's been a little bit of research in this. What we are clearly understanding and we have, I guess, for a long time, is the fascia connections that run up and down, um, you know, the leg basically. So the knee bone's connected to the ankle bone, that sort of stuff. Um, and we know that the connective tissue in the muscle is connected to the connective tissue in the tendon. So there's definitely some fascial transmissions of load between the muscle and the tendon through not only the muscle contraction, but the connective tissue connections as well. Whether that contributes to our tendinopathy or our tendon pathology is really unclear. So there's some studies that show that the medial half of the Achilles tendon mostly takes a celial innervation, and then the lateral half is more gastroc, medial and lateral gastroc. Um, and some studies have tried to correlate where the pathology is in the tendon to things that are happening in the muscle. At the moment, it's not absolutely clear if those direct transmissions in the Achilles tendons actually increase our um, propensity to develop pathology. So at the moment, we know that connective tissue is really important, fascial connections are really important, but how it contributes to pathology, I don't think we know very much at all. Okay, so a pathological tendon has more normal tissue than a normal tendon. So therefore, we should be confident when loading tendons, even if they are in the degenerative stage of tendinopathy. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? So that's some research that Sean Docking has done, and we did it in the Achilles and patella tendon, and it's likely that it occurs in other tendons as well. So it seems that the body is really smart that if you have a pathology in a tendon that doesn't leave you weak, somehow there's a stimulus that allows us to lay down good tendon structure. Um, so how it happens, we actually don't know and um, we need to do research on that. But we can be confident loading particularly our Achilles and our patella tendon and as, and as I say, I think probably our hamstring tendon is very similar to that. What happens in the upper limb, I'm not so clear about. However, the key thing about this, I think, is educating the person that they have good tendon structure. 
So many people have had a, an image in the report that suggests that they have tears and degeneration. They seem to think that their tendon is hanging on by a thread. And showing them and um, elaborating on the fact that they have developed good tissue is probably one of the most important education things that you can give them. So, and I guess the same is true of clinicians. Very often they don't understand that pathological tendons actually have a lot of good tissue in it. The whole tendon isn't pathological, it's just parts of it that are, and there's plenty of good tissue. So that's really important knowledge for both the physio and the patient in terms of being capable and happy to load the tendon. Educating the patient on the pathology, would that then affect the neural drive? That's a really good question. We know in lower limb tendons from Ebony and Rio's work that the neural drive is different if you have a tendinopathy, but the change is in mainly in the motor cortex. So we have a hyperexcitability of the motor cortex and we have a hyperinhibition. Now that's probably pain driven and we know we can change both the hyperexcitability and the hyperinhibition with an exercise based program. So I don't think it's something you can decide to do. I think it is related to pain more than you know the rest of your brain telling you to be careful on that. I don't think we have the evidence for that but I think lower limb tendons are simple in the perspective of pain causes you to unload, the unloading causes dysfunction. That's a very easy thing to reverse with a proper rehabilitation program. I don't think it's much more complex than that. I think getting involved in, um, you know, thinking that these patients need lots of love and reassurance, and again, I can't talk pain very well, but I think we, in the lower limb, we overestimate the effect of sort of the biopsychosocial approach. It's pretty simple, get them loading correctly, get them strong, they'll get better. They don't tend to have long-term issues. If uh, listeners wanted to find you on social media or find some of your work, where should they go? So the only social media I have is Twitter and I really treat that as a contact point. So if somebody does come with a clinical question, I always answer it on Twitter. The only other place you can find me is through the La Trobe University website. So that has a list of all my publications and the journals that have them. So people are able to read anything that we've done in research. Um, we have written a few clinical type perspectives on tendon pain, but most, most, most of what we've written is actually um, you know, trials and things like that. So depending on what you want to know, you will probably find most of the answers in our journal papers, our book chapters, all of that sort of stuff.